Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number seven. And today we're going to be talking about something called encumbrances. A couple things that I want to mention to you that, uh, if you will, are not time sensitive. And that is the fact that you should have gone to the Class Blackboard website. You should make sure that you downloaded that study guide, that you have looked up every single solitary answer. You know exactly where it is. You've written the page down. And remember, when you come in, what we want to do is see everybody get 100 on that exam. None of this 95, 96 stuff. We want 100%. And you have that opportunity to do that if you have downloaded and looked up all the answers. You'll do really, really well. So you want to do that and, that, and part of the reason why I do that is so that it's helping you to learn how to prepare for the state exam. Uh, consistently, I hear students that will come to me and say, well, how do I prepare for the state exam? And it's always the same thing. I say, go get some tests, take the tests, grade yourself, be honest with yourself if you don't understand where the answer, you know, what the right answer is. Don't peek at the answers beforehand. Mark yourself you know, that you either got it right or wrong, and if you did get it right, but you guessed at it, know that, and then go back and read and find out where in the book that information is and refresh your memory. People that follow that advice always do well and pass the state exam the first time. Uh, so you want to make sure that you do that. Very, 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 very important that you do that. Second thing that you should have done is you should have downloaded the um, guidelines for the professional interview. You should be working on that professional interview now. It's pretty straightforward. It's only a two-page document, but again, it's very, very important that you do that. The concept behind it is that you want to find out what people do or somebody does in the industry. What's their day-to-day -day job? It would be like as if I was going to be an airline pilot, for example. I would probably, before I invested a whole bunch of money doing it, I would go out and talk to some airline pilots and say, what is this job like? You know, what do you do? What do you get paid? You know, how many hours a day do you work? How many days a week do you work? I, I would want to know that stuff, okay? Same thing with real estate. You want to talk to somebody that's in an area of real estate that you'd be interested in working. So if it's an appraiser, talk to an appraiser. Some people will say, well, how do I get a hold of somebody? Guess what? Go over. You see a sign on the house, open house, real estate office, go by, knock on the door, walk in, say, hi, I'm a student at Sacramento City College. I'm taking some real estate classes, and I'd like to talk to you about what it's like to have a career in real estate. You have a few minutes. It's that simple, not that hard. Okay, so anyway, we're going to be talking about encumbrances today. What uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a definition of what an encumbrance is. An encumbrance is basically doing something that prevents me from doing something. It encumbers me. It prevents me the way I t typically like to look at it. If I'm going to encumber you from uh, leaving the classroom here, I may stand in the middle of the doorway and stop you from going. I'm going to encumber you. I'm going to prevent you from doing that. In, in real estate, there are two types of encumbrances. There's one that is a monetary type of encumbrance. In other words, something that affects the monetary value of your property in the form of usually a lien or a judgment of some kind that you have to pay off before you can sell the property to somebody or in many cases refinance the property, if you will, money. The other kind is a physical encumbrance, and that would be where somebody like a utility company may have things like a transformer sitting on the side of your driveway that you cannot go out there, you know, and dig it up and throw it away and plant flowers, okay? They have the right to come in, in many cases, not only to come in 
and you can't remove it, but also they may have a, a rights to have access to come in and repair it, replace it, whatever. And so we'll talk about those kinds. So we have monetary and physical. So anyway, what I'm going to do is move over here to my old friendly document camera, and we'll talk first about the encumbrances that are considered to be a lien. Now, a lien is something in which it's a document that secures some kind of a loan that I make for, to somebody. Okay. So, for example, it says a lien is a document that uses the property to secure the payment of the debt uh, or discharge of any obligation. For example, a lien in another area, like if you bought a brand new car and you financed it, a lien would be the money that you owe against the car. And what that would happen is that the people that are lending you the money would hold on to the pink slip until you made the last payment, and then they would send you the pink slip in the mail. And then at that point, you would be able to freely sign it over or sell it to anybody else that you would want to. That would be a lien against the property. Okay? So when we talk about liens, we have some broad categories of them. I can figure out how to work this book. Okay. We have some broad categories, and we'll talk about them. Okay. These are money types of liens now. Keep that in mind. The first one is called a trust deed or a mortgage. Okay. Now, keep in mind, too, uh, a couple other things that I want to mention because they point this down here is that there are two types of liens of a monetary nature that you may have. One is a voluntary lien. And another one is a non-voluntary, okay? And I'm going to talk about that. For example, a deed of trust or a mortgage is a voluntary lien. So when you get ready to borrow the money from the bank, they say to you, okay, I'm going to lend you the money on the house to buy the house or to refinance the house or maybe a second mortgage to put air conditioning or new roof on it or whatever. But what they say to you is, listen, when I lend you the money, I want you to pledge that property that you have. I want you, you know, I want to know that in the event that you don't pay the mortgage on that, you don't pay the monthly payment, I have the right to go ahead and foreclose and get my money back. But you've done that voluntarily. Nobody has twisted your arm. You, you're the one that decided to buy the house. You're the one that decided to borrow the money. Nobody has involuntarily done that to you, okay? So normally things like deeds of trust and mortgages would be involuntary or would be voluntary liens. Now, I'll just take a second here and explain the difference between the two of them, and we will talk, cover this material again. But, you know, when we talk about borrowing money all the time, we use the term mortgage. I use the term mortgage. If you leave here today and you go out and you're driving down the street, you're going to see a mortgage company. You know, there's a Viatech mortgage company. You know, Countrywide Funding is a mortgage company. If you go to the bank, they'll talk about borrowing money and getting a mortgage. If you pay the house off, you're going to have a mortgage burning ceremony. I mean, no matter what it is, we use the term mortgage, mortgage, mortgage. Usually you hear that term more or less back east. What it is is it's a security document. It's a two-party instrument. It's between the lender and the person that borrows the money. There's only two parties involved. And in the event that there's any kind of, if you don't make your monthly payments, then the lender will go before a court and go through some form of what we call a judicial foreclosure process and saying, you know, old Pat hasn't been making his payments. 
And then what will happen is you go through a foreclosure process to make sure that maybe, you know, you know that I have, uh, as a lender, have actually been, you know, waiting to get the payments, haven't gotten, you know, I'll have to prove to maybe the judge that I haven't been getting the payments, okay? And then there might, there's a period of time in which maybe uh, the person that borrowed the money could come in if I started some kind of foreclosure process to cure the loan and get the property back, okay? But that's more or less always done judicially or within a court. The other kind that we use in California is something that we don't call a mortgage. We call a deed of trust. And what a deed of trust is is that we, hand, we have a third party added to the equation. Under a deed of trust, what we do is we want to set it up so that, first of all, we don't have to go to court. We just have a law. We follow a statutory legal procedure that in the event that somebody doesn't make payments, that I have a, a set of rules to follow to go ahead and foreclose on the property. In that particular case, this instrument called the deed of trust has three parties. It has the person that borrows the money, typically called the borrower. Okay. We have another person called the person that lends the money, which is the banker. We call them the trustee, or I'm sorry, the trustor. And then the person, that, I'm sorry, the person that lends the money that we call the lender is called the beneficiary. The person that borrows the money is called the um, trustor. And the person that holds title to the property, the ability, and, and when I say holds title, has the ability to foreclose, if necessary, is called the trustee. Okay? So what it, essentially the way that works is that is like this. I need to be making payments on my loan. Maybe I start missing payments. What happens is the bank tries to contact me. You know, maybe they miss me. Maybe I promise that I'm going to make payments. But for whatever reason, I just stop making payments. The bank usually has a period of time that they may wait based on the contract that you signed, the note that you signed. And maybe they work, maybe they wait 30, 60 days and they're not getting any payments from you. What they do at that point in time is they contact the trustee. And they say, you know what, we've tried every way we can to get Pat to make his payments. He's not able to make his payments. I want you to start the foreclosure process. The trustee is the one that does the foreclosure. They'll post notes and uh, notices in the newspaper. They'll put postings on the house that, to say that the house is going to be sold for foreclosure. Uh, and then finally, they're actually the ones that will stand on the courthouse steps if necessary and sell the property. Okay, so that's a trustee. They do that. Okay. So anyway, but anyway, these are voluntary liens that we decide to do. In the case of a, of a once the mortgage is paid off, or like in the case of a deed of trust, once that's paid off, the person that has lent you the money normally will provide something called the deed of reconveyance that will be recorded at the county recorder's office that will say, hey, that deed of trust that that person had years ago is now paid off and it no longer is valid, not valid, but no longer exists against that property, Okay. The second kind of a lien that we may have is something called a mechanics lien. And a mechanics lien is this. When you borrow, not borrow, but when you contract with somebody to provide either services for your house, and when I say services, I mean a carpenter, an electrician, somebody running a tractor, a backhoe, a landscaping person, somebody that's drawing a mural on your wall, a painter, a roofer, whatever, providing physical services for you. And if you decide that you're not going to pay them, one of the rights that they have is to file what's called a mechanics lien. And what they basically do is they can go down and file this lien and say, you know what, you know, Pat's not making 
and Pat did not pay me for the new roof that I put on the house. And that lien, at that point, needs to either be paid off, okay, in other words, pay off the lien, or go and have something negotiated to have some kind of satisfaction judgment that you've actually paid that lien off, okay? Or you're not going to be able to probably borrow money against the house, and you're not going to be able to sell the house unless that's taken care of. How do you get in, pro in problems with, with mechanics liens? It's typically, in most circumstances, due to a disagreement between you and the person that provided the services. Usually, in a lot of cases, it can be with the fact that maybe your interpretation of their, the work that they should do and their interpretation of the work that they should do are two different, two different facts. You know, you may have thought when you were talking about a brand new roof that they were going to go up and completely remove the roof. They were going to put brand new roofing materials on. They were going to replace all the gutters and all the downspouts. Their interpretation of it was, no, we're going to put a new roof on, but if you want the gutters and the downspouts replaced, that's going to cost you extra money. And then you get in a confrontation. And then you finally say to them, I'm not going to pay you. And they say, fine, we'll file a mechanics lien. Okay, and then that ties it up, and you can't, you know, essentially it's hard to find somebody because the mechanics lien is either going to have to be satisfied and paid off, or, you know, the lender that's going to lend you money is going to have to agree that, hey, in the event of a foreclosure, the mechanic will get paid before the lender will, and you're going to find, you're going to, you're not going to find many lenders that are willing to do that. Okay. So anyway, mechanics liens are the second one. The third one is called judgments and attachments. Okay, a judgment would be where the, well, in fact, we'll find out where the judgment comes up in your book here. Um, let me see here. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure whether, a ju okay, judgments. This is on page uh, 64 in the 11th edition of the book. Judgment, just so we get have an idea what these terms mean. A judgment is a court decision determining the rights of the parties involved and the amount of compensation. A judgment can be appealed and is good for 10 years. Okay, so what it is is that a judgment means that a decision has been made. Okay, flat out it means the decision has been made. You know, you've gone to court. Uh, finally, the judge has said, you know what, Pat, you need to pay this guy. Okay, or whatever. That's the judgment, and then that then what ends up happening is that you have to you have to you know that's recorded against the property and you have to satisfy it. Okay. Um, they also talk about things like small claims court. Okay. Uh, small claims court is where, for those of you that are not aware of it, it's a place where you can take care of small little legal matters. Every year they continue to raise the amount of money that you can go to small claims court for. Uh, you represent yourself. You don't have an attorney there. It's kind of like a Judge Judy type of a place, you know, where you go and represent yourself. It's where you hear the story from one party. The judge hears the story from the other side. And then they have, and by the way, they've always, judges have heard these stories before. So if you think you're creative, just watch the Judge Judy type of show and you'll hear that story that you're thinking of. You know, like I didn't know, I wasn't sure. They, you know, they've heard all that before. And they'll render a decision, and typically that decision is going to be based on the documents you may have or whatever the law is, you know. Not that you dislike the guy or whatever, you know. It's, you know and sometimes it could be something that doesn't appear to be very fair, but it's the law, okay. 
Um, then they talk about the termination. If you're going to have a termination of the judgment, you're going to have to have, it says most judgment liens are terminated by something called the satisfaction of judgment. A satisfaction of judgment is a compensation made by the payment of money or the return of property, whatever. Okay. Now, attachment is a little bit different in the sense that an attachment is a process of a lien that create is a process of the law that creates a lien. Okay. It gives custody of the real or the personal property to the courts to assure payment of the pending lawsuit in that county, okay, so that you just know what the difference is. Now, why you as a real estate agent, you may say, well, why would I be concerned about this? You know, why am I even interested in this? Here's the reason why. Uh, you, I'll give you two different instances. You could basically, when you think about it, if you're a real estate agent, you're earning your commission on the fact that you're helping somebody sell a house or you're helping somebody buy a house, until you either sell the house or they buy the house and the transaction is completed, you don't get paid. You know, you could be driving them around and showing them a lot of property, and until you finally make that offer and it's accepted and the deal is done, you don't get paid. So here's what happens. You may go out and visit with somebody. You may list their house for sale. They're going to fill out all the paperwork, and they're going to say, hey, I have no problems. There's no liens or judgments. I just have one loan against the house or whatever. And then what will happen is you may go along and then finally you put it in the multiple listing system and a lot of people take a look at it and finally you receive a purchase offer. You know, somebody comes along, Jim Smith comes along and says, you know what, I want to buy the house. And then you'll have like an offer, counter offer, and finally you decide, okay, I'm going to accept that offer and go forward. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to let them buy the house. Normally, under 99.999% of the time, Anybody that is prudent, well, usually part of their offer is going to say, I want, subject to me taking a look at a preliminary, taking a look at the title report, I want to see if there's anything recorded against this. When that title report comes out from the title company, it's going to have things like the person who owns the property, so now we for sure know who's on the deed. It's going to have the legal description of the property. It's going to have things like any liens against the property, you know, any mortgages that are owed against it. Any judgments, any IRS liens, um, any property taxes, any special assessments, just on and on. Any easements, if there's covenants, conditions, and restrictions on the property, all going to be recorded in this title report. What's going to happen is the buyer normally has a certain number of days that are specified in the contract for them to read that, read that report and either agree that they'll accept the property in that condition or tell the buyer that they're going to reject it, okay? So at that point in time, all of a sudden, the person that owns the property, now you're going to find out that maybe, hey, there is a lien against it. Maybe the IRS does owe money, or is owed money, or maybe the taxes are past due, <laughs> or maybe you didn't know about it, but the person that's getting ready to buy it, that there's an easement for a gas line right across the backyard where they want to put a pool. That's all going to come out in that report. So... Keep, consider this. You're the real estate agent. You, you're not going to make any money until the deal closes. If you all of a sudden find out this title report has all these problems against it, you are going to be very motivated to try to help the owner cure those problems. Very, very important. Otherwise, if, the, if you don't, if you're not try, at least trying to assist them, what's going to happen is the whole deal will blow up and you, it'll go away. Okay, so that's when your first indication you're going to have that. Okay? Um, 
Going back, I'm going to go back to that other chart for a minute, tearing this book apart here. Okay. Uh, the other thing, so we talked about judgments and attachments. Also, you can have things called tax liens and special assessments. Uh, and I'll go back into the book where that is a tax lien is just on property taxes, for example. And, and it also depends upon where you live, whether you live in the city or live in the county or if there's any kind of special uh, assessment areas where there's an assessment. But, for example, property taxes. You know, when you, when you buy a house, at least in California right now, the property taxes that are, are going to be paid on that house, the basic property taxes, are going to be 1% of the sales price of the house or property. So that means if you buy the property and the sales price was $100,000, that means that the property taxes on a yearly basis are going to be $1,000. Okay? If it's $200,000, it's $2,000. If it's $300,000, it's $3,000. Okay? Property taxes. Okay? Those property taxes are paid on a semi-annual basis twice a year. What ends up happening is you cannot pay something you don't already owe. So first thing is, is those taxes become a lien against your property. And then you pay them. Now, people say, give me an, an analogy like that. It would be like, for example, you go out to eat in a restaurant. Okay? You can't walk into the restaurant and say, here's $20. They'll say, well, what's the $20 for? And you say, well, I'm thinking about eating, you know. What they'll do is they'll, what happens is you owe the ta you owe the bill after you sit down and eat. Okay, so property taxes the same way you have to have the tax property taxes as a lien before you make payment on them. Okay, same thing. So there'll be a lien, and that's one of the things. By the way, whenever we buy or sell property, we prorate those taxes based on how long the existing owner has lived in there, and maybe have they paid them yet or not, and also you may find out that the owner that lives there has already paid the taxes, and now when they get ready to sell it, they'll get some of that tax money back because some of the time that they've paid for is when the buyer is going to live there. So that's a proration. Okay? Special assessments, on the other hand, are where the um, special assessments are where the, uh, the people that live in the area or it could be the developer has done this, has said, you know, we need something extra. And the reason why they do these special assessments, by the way, is at one time, every time we needed something, what would happen is that we would just raise the property taxes. Okay? And when we pass this thing, and we'll talk about it in future chapters called Proposition 13, what happened is they said, you know what? We're going to put a limit on that. You, you, you know, you, no more of this raising property taxes. What they did is they went to the government and they said, you know what? We've asked you, I don't know how many times, to slow down how much money you're spending. But apparently you're not paying any attention. So what we're going to do is pass a law called Proposition 13. We're going to have a proposition that's going to limit how much money we're going to give you. So if we can't control how you spend it, we're going to limit you how much money we're going to give you. And that sounds really good, but what ends up happening is the fact that if you have a special need in your community for some other additional thing, the money is not there in the property taxes to pay for it. As an example, street lighting. You may find out that you need street lighting in your area. Well, you go down to the county and say, excuse me, it's dark out there. I want to have street lighting. They'll say, that's nice. We'd love to do it, but we don't have the money. So what you do is say, can we form a district to help pay for that? That would be a special assessment that may be unique to your area. So you're going to pay your property taxes, plus you'll pay some kind of a special assessment on top of that for whatever. It could be for street lights. It could be uh, 
for some other kind of thing, maybe a park, maybe a fire department, maybe a school district, some other additional thing that you want. It's a special assessment you're going to pay. We'll talk more about that. Okay, so I'm looking back through here. Okay, um, one of the things, going back to the mechanics lien for a minute, is I just want to make you aware of the fact that the mechanics liens are very, very tough. Their job is to really protect people that are working with their hands or people that are supplying materials to your site. So, for example, if you go down and get some materials from someplace like Home Depot or Lowe's, or let's just say a building supply company, and you're going to build a fence, and you get these materials and they're delivered to your site, and you decide you're not going to pay the bill, then a mechanics lien could be filed for the fact of against the materials. In other words, they say we delivered $1,000 worth of fencing materials to you, and you did not pay the bill, so the only way we can get the bill, because they're used on their property, is to file a mechanics lien. Okay, which again will tie your property up until you satisfy whatever that lien happens to be, either by paying it or negotiating it or getting it removed because it's a misunderstanding or whatever. Okay, but it's very, very tough and it's something that you really want to be aware of. Um, they also, okay, so I think that's pretty much it for mechanics liens. Um, there is one thing that you will notice sometimes. I'll just kind of throw this in, is that you may have an owner of property under mechanics liens that will file something called a notice of non-responsibility. And let me read what this says here. It says, and this sounds kind of crazy when you first read it. It says an owner, an owner may file a notice of non-responsibility within 10 days of discovering that an unauthorized person is performing construction service on his or her property. Okay? A, record, a recorded and verified notice of non-responsibility is posted on the property stating that the owner is not responsible for work being done. Okay? Bear with me. This action releases the owner from liability caused by the unauthorized activity and prevents suppliers from filing a valid mechanics lien if the tenant is ins installing carpet in your apartment without your authorization filing a notice of non-responsibility with the county recorder's office would protect your rights against the carpet supplier. Another thing that you're going to notice along with this is that you may go out to a shopping center and notice that somebody that is going to be putting in like a new donut shop, coffee shop, hardware store, or whatever, when they rent that place, they just are renting a shell. And when they start putting in, you know, one of the first things after they, you know, have signed the lease is they're going to be putting shelving in. Maybe they may be breaking up the floor if it's a restaurant, putting in, you know, um, water lines for sinks or electricity for the walk-in boxes or something like that. What happens is, is you'll look at that place and you'll notice that there'll be a, a sign posted right at the entrance to the door and it'll say this is a notice of non-responsibility. It's posted there because what happens is is that the landlord wants to make everybody aware of the fact that he or she is not responsible for the work that's going on in that premises. It's actually the work is being contracted by the peer person that's leasing the property. Okay, 
So the tenant is the one that is asking for the work to be done. And the landlord wants to make it clear to every contractor that walks in that door that, by the way, the contract you have is between you and the tenant, not between you and me. So don't go think that this is me, this is you and the tenant. You need to make that clear. Because you could have, for example, a business could decide that, and, and, and you may not be aware of this, but a lot of businesses, I'm thinking about a, an ice cream shop that's in, in, uh, in uh, Folsom, Carvel shop. And when I talk to the owner there, with all those leasehold improvements they put in there, you're in the two dollars $300,000 range. You may go, well, how do you come up with that? Well, you walk into some of these shops and you see that they have all this special equipment, all these special lines that had to go in, electricity had to go in, drywall work, fancy counters, sometimes their granite counters. All that stuff costs money. In fact, uh, I know uh, a gentleman that just did a mural in our house, a muralist, and he's been called in to do things in restaurants where they've put in maybe ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in just drawing fancy pictures on the wall. You know, so these people put a lot of money into their businesses, and the purpose of that notice is to let whoever walks in that door know that listen, this is the tenant having this work done, not the landlord. Okay, very, very important. Don't hold, don't bug me, don't harm me with this thing. Okay. So we talked also about um, special assessments too, for a minute, and I want to talk about that, and I want to read this so to make sure that you get this. It says, special assessments, local improvements are paid for by property owners in a given district through special assessments. Improvements such as streets, sewers, street lighting, and irrigation projects are generally paid for by property owners who have benefited from the work being done. Okay? If these assessments are not paid, they become a lien against the property most special assessments are 10 to 30 year bonds. So in other words, the special assessment, what happens is there's a bond issue that's, that's given. The money has gone out. It's raised, you know, and, and, you know, from investors in the bond market. The money comes in, the construction project, whatever it is, like the street lights are done. And then each property owner pays some proportion back in the form of interest payments and in interest or interest in principal until the bonds are paid off. Okay. Most people don't realize that any project that's built, you know, even if you're building a bridge, you know, you have something called bonds that raise the money. Now, what happens is when we have bridges, the reason why we have toll booths, so the way they start out is they're collecting money to pay for the bonds is why they're doing it, okay? In this case, if it's something to do with the property, they're collecting money from the property owners to make payments on the bonds. Uh, this allows the property owner a reasonable amount of time to pay them off, Okay, so it's not immediate. The property can, the property can be transferred without the assessment being paid. Okay, meaning the new holder, new person buying the property is going to assume that, that payment. Okay. It is best that the buyer and the seller agrees to the, uh, with the buyer will assume the assessment. Okay. And they go in here and they say, for example, developers, I'll give you an example here. Developers finance roads, schools, and other off-site improvements with something called Melarus bonds, uh, which become a special tax levied against homeowners. Sellers must disclose if their property is subject to Melarus. Now, let me tell you what that is. You'll go up into certain areas, especially new areas, new development areas, where the developer needs to put these infrastructure things in place but there's no county funds to be able to do it. So what they do is they float an issue. They float a, float a bond issue, and then 
the homeowners pay these things called Merrill Roos. Like, for example, in my home, besides my principal interest, taxes and insurance, the normal stuff, and homeowners dues, I also pay Merrill Roos, okay, to the tune of I think it's 375 bucks a month. I make those payments on special things that are within that community, okay? And you will find properties that are listed for sale that will say this pro- the big benefit about this property is it has no Melarus. And you may say, well, how does that happen? Well, usually you'll see that if you have, a, in some cases, a brand-new neighborhood where the streets are brand-new, the curbs are brand-new, everything is brand-new, it never existed before, that usually has some form of Melarus because they needed the money to put that in. Conversely, if you go in and buy a lot in a well-developed neighborhood that's been there forever, for years and years and years, okay, what will happen is the streets have been put in, the curbs, the gutters, they've been there for years, and because they have, there's no need for that special bond assessment. Okay, So you'll see that. And what it is is a real estate agent, you need to make sure that if the property has this Melarus that is disclosed to the buyer, and they're aware of that, and that they have to make payments. Okay. Um, we talked about judgments. We talked about small claims court and termination of liens. Okay, next thing that they talk about in here that's of a monetary nature is something called Liz Pendants. Okay? And this is something, again, that you may not have heard of, so I'm going to kind of read a little bit of this and point out what it is. Liz Pendants is the recording of a notice with the county recorder's office warning all persons that certain type a certain type of lawsuit is pending concerning a particular property okay attorneys often file this pendants before a court date is set in order to stop the transfer of real property a Liz pendant places a cloud on the title and is effective when filed the property is not marketable until the Liz pendants have been removed um, and I'll read this little green part down here. It says, Liz Pendants is a notice of a pending lawsuit that may affect the cloud, the title of the real property, based upon a lawsuit outcome. In other words, it has not been decided yet. Okay. It remains on the public record, is effective until the Liz Pendants is removed, the court action is dismissed, or the final judgment is rendered. So, in other words, it's a way that, let's say, for example, the suit is going to be over the fact of something dealing with the property. And what they want to do is that a possibility of the outcome of the suit is maybe the person bringing the suit may end up legally winning the property. And what they're trying to do is say, wait a minute, if that's going to be a possibility of the outcome of the lawsuit, what we want to do is stop this person from selling it because once they sell it, they'll receive the money, and the next thing you know, anything that we would be able to claim because of the thing that they did wrong is going to be gone. In other words, they're going to sell the property, they'll leave with the money, and we're not going to get anything. So in order to prevent this from happening, they'll file these things called Liz Pendants. The only thing I want to say is that if you're ever involved in this, you want to be very, very careful about how this is done. You want to make sure the attorney is not doing something that's going to consider to be malicious, or they're going to come back and say, what are you doing this for? You're, you're, you're affecting my business, you're affecting my ability to transfer. You've got to be very careful. But just so you know that this exists, where would you find out about it if you weren't told ahead of time? It would be in the title report. Because the title report is going to pull up everything that is recorded in the county. It's going to disclose everything to you. Okay, everything will be, anything that has been recorded is going to show up in that title report. Go ahead and hit the button, hit the button. 
We have a question. Fine. No, hit the button and hold it. We have a question from the gentleman on the right yeah. side. Would uh, special assessments uh, show up on that uh, title search also? Uh, yeah, his question is, would special assessments show up on the title search? You can let the button go now. Yes, that would. Yeah. The whole point is, is that that initial report is what you're really doing with the title company is this. You're putting, you, you know, you're asking them to insure the title. The first thing that they're going to do is they're going to send, you know, it used to be in the old days that they would have people at the courthouse. Uh, later on, we had a thing called the title plant where we have a complete duplication of what's at the recorder's office. And what they essentially do is they go down and look at, they look through the list and look for all the liens, judgments, everything. They go right back to the grant deed. They look at the grant deed. They say, they'll write in the report, you know, how the title is held. You know, is it husband and wife, joint tenants, joint tenants right of survival? What is it? They'll have a legal description. They'll talk, they'll have listed in there the status of the property taxes. They'll have any mortgages or what we call deeds of trust. They'll have any easements. So, for example, if PG&E has an easement on there to put a transformer in your property, that'll be recorded. If uh, SMUD has some kind of an easement, if they happen to be the utility company you're using, they'll do it. You could have where maybe SMUD has a transformer easement and PG&E has a gas line easement. And you may find out that somebody like uh, a telephone company has another easement <laughs> to bring... Um, a telephone line on your property. In fact, in some cases, some of those easements are, are there because you're not only supporting yourself, but you're supporting people in the, you know, in the community. Okay, that's why those transformers, I say transformers because what I visualize in my mind is driving down the street and seeing these things look like green boxes sitting on the side of the driveway or up front, and they're transformers. Or you have this little cone shape, not cone shaped thing, but this little uh, bullet shaped thing sticking out of the ground, and it might be something like a TV service or cable service. All those things are listed because you want to know, you know, you know, can I, you know, what is that thing over there? <laughs> you know what I mean? If there's any rights of way, which we haven't talked about yet, physical things, you know, in other words, where somebody has the right to cross your property to get to their property and it's been recorded, it's going to be at the county recorder's office. And it's so important that you read that document. You absolutely read that document. Make sure you understand everything. Your client understands everything. And what you're trying to do is you don't want to get to the end of the transaction all of a sudden find the whole thing blows up in your face because there was some kind of a, of a, a judgment or a lien or, uh, or something against there, and all of a sudden the client doesn't know about it. You, know, you want to make sure that you clearly understand it. That's one of the things you want to have on your checklist if you're working with and You want to see that right away. In fact, a lot of times title companies, that's one of the first things. As soon as you open up an escrow, First thing they do, they call the title officer, they open up the title order, and they take pride on the fact that they get that title report out, usually in the first 24 to 48 hours, because it's that critical. Because if it's not, if, if there's something wrong with that property, you want to know about it now. Also, there can be things that are wrong with the property the clients don't know about. Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple years ago, I had one of my rental properties I wanted to refinance it. Okay. I had had a first mortgage on it, a normal first mortgage, you know, first loan, deed of trust, whatever you want to call it. And I had had an equity line of credit. And I used that equity line. That's the, what an equity line of credit is, is, is what you do is you don't actually borrow the money, but you have a deed of trust recorded that gives you the authorization to borrow money. You see that when you go to the bank. You know, they'll say get an equity line of credit. It means you can go down and, 
you know, you establish a line of credit, say, for $50,000. People use these a lot when they're doing construction on a house, you know, like improvements. And so, or they're going to use it for something else. They may use it for three or four different things. So what they'll do is they'll say, you know, I don't need the money right now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow the money, you know, as I need it. And usually the bank will give you a check specifically for that line of credit or a debit card that you can go stick in the ATM. And But still there's a deed of trust recorded that you can have that amount of money against your property. Well, I had this, used it, paid off whatever it was, didn't even think about it. You know, didn't even think about it. And the bank doesn't call you up. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, we've been noticing that you haven't been using this line of credit. Because they expect that, hey, you know, you may have this line of credit and use it this year, uh, use it this year, and then maybe not use it for a couple of years and then use it again. So there's no reason why they want to, you know, want to clear it. So in the meantime, because you haven't been making payments or I wasn't making payments, I didn't think anything about it. So when I got ready to refinance the house, you know, sat down with the uh, the guy, the, the loan officer, uh, sat down with him, filled out all the appropriate paperwork. Do you have any loans against the property? No, just first deed of trust, that's it. And all of a sudden I get a phone call from him, and I knew as soon as I got the phone call, I thought to myself, I'll bet you it's that line of credit. And what it was is I just, you know, had completely forgot about it. So all it was a matter of doing was just doing what we call a deed of reconveyance to pay it off. The other reason why those lines of credit stick out there for a long period of time is because when you get them, typically what happens is that they'll say, you know, no appraisal fee, no loan fees, no this fee, no that fee, whatever. And usually the reason why is they figure you're going to have this line of credit for a fairly long period of time, and they'll earn that money back in the form of interest that they'll charge you. Well, what will end up happening is if you borrow that money and normally pay it off in six months, you know, by you know selling the property, usually you're going to pay some kind of a, of a penalty. You may pay so many months interest because you've paid it off earlier. So what will end up happening is those loans or those those um, lines of credit will stay on houses because people say, yeah, I paid it off, but you know what? If I if I tell the bank to clear it, then I'm going to have to pay a penalty. Okay. So I could borrow money, you know, use the money, make payments on it, pay it off, but as long as I don't clear it, I don't have to pay the penalty. And usually those penalties are usually like they don't kick in. They'll kick in any time prior to, say, three years. So if you pay it off, you may pay, for example, you know, let's say five months interest if you pay it off within six months. If you pay it off within a year, it might be four months. So there'll be some number that you'll have. And as you get closer to three years, it will end up happening. At the end of three years, normally there's no penalty at all because the bank feels or has established something they've gotten their money back. Okay, So that's why those things end up hanging around for a long period of time. And they'll just show up, you know, and you won't know about it. you know, Or you'll find out uh, that... Uh, Maybe you had a mechanics lien. Somebody got angry with you because you didn't pay, and you finally settled it. You paid the guy off, and you never realized the fact that the guy never cleared that, that lien off the property. Now you've got to go trace the guy down and find it. That, those kinds of things happen. Okay. Um, anyway, we talked about Liz Pendens. Sheriff's sale is another one where the sheriff is going to go ahead and uh, has a court-ordered sale. To sell the property, it says we'll have something called the writ of execution. is a court order requiring the sale of certain property to satisfy a judgment. So in other words, the judgment's been made. You owe the money. And what's going to happen is since you're not going to pay it off, the sheriff's going to sell your property and is going to pay whatever that judgment is. 
Okay? So it says a writ of execution extends the lien against the real property for one year. If the judgment has already been recorded as a lien on the property, the writ of execution will not be created as a new lien. The county sheriff or other local official are then ordered to secure and to sell the real or personal property to satisfy the lien. So it could also have been personal property. You know, in other words, you owe some money. Um, you know, maybe you've rented someplace like a warehouse or something, and they want to, you know, you haven't been making payment. Maybe they're going to sell the property to satisfy whatever that happens to be. But that's the idea behind it. Okay, and the, the last thing in this area that we want to talk about is something called an injunction. An injunction is a court order to say stop. We hear that term all the time. Injunction just means stop. So, for example, in this case, it says an injunction is a court order restricting a party from doing an act such as violating private deed restrictions. Okay? Um, by the way, I don't know whether I covered this or not, but private deed restrictions are these. Um, did I? I don't think I covered that in here. Okay, anyway, when you talk about real property, you have two major things that can restrict the use of the property. One of them is called zoning. So in other words, if I have a piece of land and let's say maybe I want to build an office building on it, they, what will happen is, is I go down to the county and they may say to me, well, you know, it's nice that you want to build an office building, but it's not zoned for an office building. What that means is that how has the county identified that property's use? Maybe they've identified it to be residential use. Okay. Also, the zoning, when we talk about zoning, which is in another chapter, what that can basically do is it can restrict. For example, they could say in the neighborhood, listen, your house can be no more than two stories high. can't be three stories high. It can only be two. The setback from the back fence to, the, to your house has got to be a minimum of 20 feet. The side yards have got to be a minimum of five feet. Those are zoning restrictions. They're public restrictions, public. In other words, the public has you know, the county building department, county board of supervisors, uh, city council have passed these. They're readily available to the public, and you see them, but they're public. The other kind of a thing is called a deed restriction or a private property restriction, and that's typically called a covenant condition and restriction. And a lot of us refer to those things nowadays as homeowners. Associations enforce those. So if you hear, for example, where somebody will say to you, uh, you know, you can't park um, your 55 Chevy on the front lawn. Okay, that's against the, pro against the homeowners association. What they're really saying is the deed restrictions prevent you from doing that. Or the deed restrictions may say your house can't be pink with pur purple polka dots. Or the deed restrictions, like where I live, for example, if I put my trash cans out on Sunday night, the deed restrictions say that they have to be brought back and be behind the fence come Monday. Okay, if Monday night comes and they're still out in the driveway or out in the front, in the, you know, by the curb, the security guard comes around and writes a little ticket to me. I also cannot leave my car parked in the street. I can't leave things like a motorhome parked in the driveway. Those are deed restrictions. If they want to stop me from doing something that's against those restrictions, they file an injunction saying, you stop with your doing. That's an injunction. And that's where they give you an example. They say here, example, Mr. Crawford has been burning rubbish on his property. The neighbors have been complaining and have sec uh, secured a court order ordering Mr. Crawford to stop the offending practice. 
this court order should be known as an injunction. Okay, we see that also a lot of times with the stars. They'll say, you know, Jim Smith has been stalking, uh, you know, uh, I don't know this this uh, I can't think of, you know, I don't know um, some famous artist. And what they'll do is they'll have an injunction that'll say, you know, Jim Smith, who's been stalking this guy, can't come within a thousand feet of this person. Okay. You'll see that with people where their husband and wife have been married, and the, wife, the husband will say, you know, the wife is beating me up all the time. What they'll do is they'll put an injunction and say, the wife is not allowed within 500 feet of the husband. It's an injunction. Stop. Don't do that. Okay. Okay, so those were monetary. The next one that we talk about is something called items that affect the physical use of the property. In other words, physically, you can't do something with it. Not monetarily, but physically. In other words, you can't plant flowers where the transform is located on your property. You can't dig a great big hole in the backyard and break through the PG&E gas pipe. Okay, prevent you from doing that because they have the right to run that pipe through your backyard and have access to repair or work with it. Okay. There are three basic types, and we'll talk more about this again. The first one is something called an easement. The second thing is called building restrictions and zoning, which I've sort of alluded to. And the last one is called encroachments. So we'll first of all talk about easements. Okay, And I think we even have a diagram in here. It says an easement is the right to use another's land. It is an interest in, but it is not an estate. So in other words... It's a right to cross somebody's property or use somebody's property, but you don't own the property, okay? And an easement is a non-monetary encumbrance, but it is not a lien. So it's not a lien against the property. It's just restricting or it's saying this person has the right to go over and use that property. I think on... Um, let me see here. On easements, they talk about several things here. I'll use a couple examples, and I'll talk about it in more detail. An easement is, is an interest in the land owned by another person consisting in the right to use or control the land or the area above or below it okay, for a specific limited purpose. In other words, this easement might be for you to have access to get to your property, but that's all you can use it for. Okay, You can't use it to, you know, for something else. The right to enter is called ingress, meaning go in, and the right to leave is called egress. Right? Uh, okay. Now, on this page here, this gives you the classic, simple example, and this is this is what it is here. You have somebody up here that owns this property. You have somebody that owns this property. This is property A. This is property B. You have a street that goes out along outside, out front. This person here that owns this property actually owns from here all the way to here to here to here. They own all that. That's their property. If you look at their legal description and say it was a meets and bounds, it would specifically outline that's the area that I own. But what happens is, is in this case here, there's something called the driveway easement, which allows the person that lives back here to go from the street over this person's land to get to their house in the back. Okay. Now, remember that easements are created for specific purposes. 
you know, and for specific uses. So in this case, the only purpose of that easement would be to go from the street to your house and come back, okay? Not to, for example, and the intended use would be that it would be for you to use it normally. In other words, come home, pull in the, pull into the house, go into the garage, come back out and go, and go to work. Maybe occasionally go out and do shopping, normal stuff. If you all of a sudden, if you're in the back and you decide that you're going to go in a business of uh, auto repair and you start having customers going back and forth across that other guy's property, that's not what the intended use is. He or she can turn around and say, wait a minute. When that property, when I first moved in here, my understanding of that easement was for you to go to and from to get to your house, not to have these 40 or 50 people transferring or going back and forth and making all this noise over the property. You can't do that. Okay. Also, remember, it's for a specific purpose. So this person right here can have the right to go back and forth, but they also, at the same time, they cannot come out here and say, well, you know what, since I can go back and forth and I'm not driving anymore, so I... You know, instead of driving, I want to use that for a garden. No, you can't do that. It was purpose was for you to use it for a driveway, not for some other use. It's for a specific use. Now, a couple terms here so you're aware of it. The person that's back here that is, that is the tenant that is using this is called the dominant tenement. That's the correct term, dominant tenement. Okay? The person that is up front is called the servient tenement. Think of this as this is the waiter who is servicing the person in the back. Okay, I don't know any other way of explaining it except for the fact that it's servicing the person in the back. Okay, um, they give you an example here, and I'm not sure whether this hits home here, but it says, example: Abel has leased Black Acre for 10-year term. Baker owned. Wait, wait a minute. That's too complicated, okay? You know, the whole idea here is the fact that these are, you know, this guy, this guy here is allowing this guy to go back and forth across his property. Okay, that's basically it. Now, one thing that can happen is that this relationship between the two of them can be terminated, okay? And there are several different ways that it can be terminated. The first one, which is a glaring example, is that if, Property A, the guy in A, buys property B, okay, he no longer has that easement. And you may say, what? What's going on here? Well, now that property owner A owns property B, he no longer has to ask anybody's permission to get to his house. So by that very nature, that easement is what? It's gone. It disappears. There is no need for that because what would have we done? We've merged the title. Now, that same person owns both properties, so he doesn't have to say, well, wait a minute, can I go across the front yard? No, you can't. You know, there's none of that that's going on. I mean, basically what's happening is you don't need the person's permission anymore because you're the sole owner. So that's one way that we eliminate that, that easement by doing that. Now, after I buy that property or maybe I acquire that property, what I may do in that case is that if I want to, say, for example, end up selling it, I may actually come back in here and maybe have a surveyor come in here and actually change and pay them, change the legal description, and maybe if the property is large enough, uh, you know, and the access is changed, I may actually put, when I sell it, sell it not only this, but sell it th uh, this as one piece of property, which now gives that person access. Okay? So that could be one thing that would happen. Um, 
last thing over here uh, I want to mention to you is that how do you create an easement? Okay. An easement can be created in several different ways. One is by express. In other words, grant, you do it in writing. In other words, you... Now, the difference between express and implied is this. Express means that I sit down and I literally write it out. I say, you, Jim Smith, hereby have the right to go across my property. I do it in writing. Implied means by the actions that we take, okay? It's not in writing, okay? Number two is an implied easement. And implied means, that, again, we don't have it in writing, but by the very nature that, hey, I couldn't get to my property in the back unless I went across your property. I'd have to buy a helicopter for a few hundred thousand dollars to get to my property. I need to have access to the property implied. When I bought it, I thought by the structure of it that I could cross your property. That's implied. Number three, for long use, called prescription. And we'll talk about that again the next time that we meet. What that basically means by prescription is that I have used the property for that purpose for an extended period of time. And it's been open, it's been notorious, it's been obvious that I have been doing it, I've been doing it without the owner's permission. We'll talk about that the next time. Where you as a real estate agent need to know about this is when you go out to look at a property that you're trying to sell or help somebody buy or you're listing for sale, you do need to be cognizant of where the property limits are. You know, in other words, have a plat map with you, for, for goodness sake. Make sure you know where the points on the property are located. It's not uncommon for good real estate agents now, good ones, if there's, a, if there's confusion about it, to maybe say, let's stake where the monuments are on the property. Or even better, if it's even confused, let's get a survey. Let's have a survey and mark where the monuments are so I know where, where the limits of the property are. And the reason why you would want to do that is you may be standing in front of the house and go, you know what? The property says that it's 100 feet wide, but it looks to me like that guy that lives next door is crossing over a part of your property. And what you want to do is be aware of that because you don't want to sell the house to somebody only to find out that, <laughs> that this guy has for years been crossing across this guy's property. And what's ending up happening is, is that you, the new buyer, can't stop them from doing it. And so consequently, you need to be aware of the fact that, hey, you know, there is an easement on here that, that's been in existence for a long period of time. That's why it's important when you first go out there to visit with a client, in my opinion, good agents normally will contact the title insurance company and get a copy of the plat map that shows the dimensions of the property so they have a rough idea of where, you know, where the property boundaries are. So they can look at it and say, well, is that fence on your property or his property? Or at least question it. Okay, very, very important that you do it. Okay. So anyway, we're pretty much done for now, for today. And the next time we'll pick up on this and we'll continue on this, and that'll be show eight. And I want to thank you all for coming and make sure you download the study guide and start working on that first exam studying very hard. Thank you very much.